Namo Kwanshi Yen Pusa. I return. Namo means I return my life. Kwanshi Yen Pusa to that awakened one who listens at ease. How do we do that? I was talking this morning when we were looking at the Kanda Parita, when the Buddha was talking about protection. The Buddha taught protection. The opposite of protection is the uh, when we're not protected with wisdom and compassion, we just suffer endlessly. And then we seek to protect ourselves in all sorts of misguided ways by harming ourselves, harming others, thinking, although intending to try to find safety, by shoring up our security in the khandas. We don't even know they're khandas. They're not khandas when we're deluded, they're reality. My body's reality, the world is reality, my country's reality, my wealth is reality, my status is reality. And it has a reality, but a momentary reality, an empty reality, a reality that's there and then is emptied of it. Breakfast was a reality, but now the experience of having breakfast Our experience now is empty of that experience. That's the way the Buddha talked about emptiness. He talked about entering emptiness by noticing things are here and then they're empty of that. They're gone. Being excited seems so real. And then when we notice, do we also notice when our experience is empty of that? But when the mind is, when the heart is swayed uh, under the influence of mara, of ignorance, of delusion, then uh, we, we are fooled by the appearance, shored up by the way that we think, which attributes reality, con- concretizing with our thoughts, this, that, me, you, good, bad. So when the Buddha was teaching about protection, he used language to point to all the ways in which we complicate life, we discern and discriminate. Human beings, no-legged beings, snakes, two-legged beings like us, four-legged beings like Jack, the cows, the horses, the eland, the elephants many-legged beings, breathing beings, all beings. Touching them all with kindness. This is this key. Kindness is a measureless principle, a universal principle. It moves from the personal to the universal. The personal contracts around me, mine, this, that. 
and through not understanding takes birth in those conditions. Imagine that that's the only reality in town. We grasp them, lean on them, because it seems so obvious. That's what's real. Then when those conditions, by following their nature, which is what conditions do, an in-breath becomes an out-breath, a dawn becomes a sun's uh, dusk, a certain thought becomes a doubting thought. Yet when we have built our house on a condition for security, then when condition does what it naturally, conditions do what they naturally do, change, there's a sense of dislocation, suffering, old age, sickness, death, and then the scurrying, this is what leads to samsara, endless wandering, the scurrying for a new home, a new, a new abiding place. So when we touch these, what we take to be me, these aggregates with a measureless principle like kindness, that's called a protective, that's very protective, because then we start to, with kindness, we realize how conditions come and go. Kindness is patient, kindness is listening, allowing conditions to reveal their nature, their changing, unreliable, selfless, empty nature. And then kindness, those, those, those immeasurable abidings start to reveal a, unexpectedly a, a vihara, a home, a dwelling place <clears throat> that's reliable. In-breath becomes out-breath, but kindness can be with, with the whole cycle. Dawn becomes dust, kindness, or listening, or compassion, or patience, or wisdom. That's why these are universal principles that are called paramitas, that carry us across the sea of birth and death. The listening principle, the measurable principle, can be with the whole cycle, recognize the whole cycle, and then release from that. So the key principle in the protection is the invoking of the measureless. Appamano butto. Measureless is the Buddha, that which knows. Appamano dhammo. Measureless is the Dhamma, the true nature of things. Appamano sangho. Measureless is the Sangha the community of virtuous ones who are intent on the way. But we forget, we're so contracted. The whole recitation practice is about, it's not some weird practices outside the Dharma, it's about remembering, remembering the measureless. All the practices are about remembering. Sometimes remembering happens because we meet another person, a teacher that tells us. When we don't remember, then it is said that we get turned by the state. This is an important Dharma principle. When we don't remember, when we get confused and start contracting around a certain condition which is my home, maybe a feeling of pleasure or some sort of feeling of ease, 
or a certain mood that we like or a certain bodily condition that feels right. Oh, I finally feel decent. When we get lost and when, when that changes and we find ourselves feeling dis-ease or in pain or doubting, then, then if, if we, sometimes we get turned by the condition. The, the condition overwhelms us. We get turned by it. We can't bear the reality of that state. And that's all right. It's not evil. It's the way it is. The problem is sometimes in being turned by a condition, we then do something out of desperation that's even creating more karma. We, we, it's that second arrow syndrome where we start inflicting and trying to escape. We don't know the proper escape from conditions. We inflict ourselves with more harm and maybe even inflict others as we, if we get into blaming. The skill with which we can stay connected to our measureless source, like Buddha being awake, or like the Kuan Yin, another way of translating being awake is listening at ease, is when we stay rooted in our refuge, then the condition turns. We get rooted in our refuge. Like this morning, both Tanis and I woke up. We were exhausted. Just, And I'm sure this is not just... I'm just thinking, no way. There is no way. I felt horrible. Just, just barely able to stumble up. This is very difficult, I thought. Very difficult. But I, 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 I was encouraged. One, well, you know, there's the group. There's the way. Also, I had another encouragement. It's two years today since my mother uh, died. So I wanted, I'm offering today for her. So that encouraged me. But I encourage myself like this almost every morning. I, I almost always wake up feeling terrible. I don't rest when I sleep. I don't know why. But this morning was particularly. I mean, I had a hundred justifications. Kitty Sawyer, you are not well. I mean, that was such a, a, a voice of wisdom rising up from the depths. Kitty Sorrow, you are not well. But I staggered down, got the bell, rang the bell, staggered back, made some tea for Tanish myself. I thought, oh, that's a little good thing I can do, make tea for a virtuous person. Notice Jack still snoring away. Then came down and still noticed I was feeling bad, but then just namo kwan chimpusa, started the bowing. Namo means returning the life, returning the fatigue, means touching it, but not just having to contract and just be, that's only me. Returning it means letting it be, but giving it back to its natural condition. Returning to what? As one bows and touches the head to the ground, Where's the solid place here where one lets go and rests? It's the listening, returning my life. And invoking that, because we forget, oh, but I'm not feeling so well. Namo means I return my life. I name, I lift up the one who listens. We're invoking a measureless principle. We could have also said, appamano buto, we wanted. Measureless is the awakened one. 
We could use any sacred word. A sacred word is sacred when it points us to the measureless. That's when it's sacred. It takes us to the divine. And in the process of bowing, getting some blood in my head, which was good, being patient, moving, sitting, it wasn't easy, but it is practiced weaving into the uncomfortable feeling in the body. Uncomfortable feeling. Having had sickness for many years, I'm used to it in a way, but just, just listening to that, offering that to nature, making offerings to the one who listens. That in the course of the... So from 4.30 to by the time I got ready to take Jack, by the time of two hours later, the state had turned. The state had transformed. It doesn't always do that. Sometimes it is the right thing to rest. But that was a case where actually the staying with it, staying with the listening, staying with the practice, I had the opportunity to see the state turn, which states do. States do turn. That's their nature. But sometimes when we get overwhelmed by something, we get turned by the state. In this recitation practice, we're, we're learning how to allow states to turn by continually evoking the measureless one, the measureless principle, and aligning ourselves with that, the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. Then all the signs, all the beings, all the formations which still carry reality for us, still carry a charge for us. The yearnings, the hankerings, the worries, the fears, the despairs, the, all those states, to the extent to which they still are, seem to be me and mine, then, then those states still haven't been freed. Ajahn Sumedho called them the orphans of consciousness. They're orphans of consciousness because normally we don't like hanging out with those states. We don't like hanging out with despair. We don't like hanging out with doubt. We don't like hanging out with some things that are unpleasant. And so we tend, they become orphans. We tend to disown them and, and, and want to... Thinking that's an escape. That's where the second arrow comes in. We try to escape into dullness, or escape into fantasy, or escape, or try to hang on to a pleasant feeling. And then we deepen the, what's called dormant tendency, the underlying tendency to, to greed, or to desire. Same with aversion, same with all of them. But when we're practicing a measureless state like this, that's committed to like compassion, indiscriminately, may all beings be well, listening at ease to the sounds of the world. Then when we're not so busy manipulating, then anything that's still undigested comes up. So the orphans come up. Ajahn Sumedho used to regularly say, the escape hatch for the orphans from their state of 
being a refugee or the state of being disowned or state of being orphaned for an orphan to be able to come home and then and then be uh, reunited to be free liberated from that split from that condition going so that an orphan can then go to cessation back into health the escape hatch is consciousness what Ajahn Samadhi used to say in all the time, the escape hatch is right here now. And so when these are coming, fatigue or all these difficult states, namo kwanchiyam pusa, namo kwanchiyam pusa, then when that state comes, we can listen to the sound of that state, be with that state, and then that state will turn it will transform in and of itself because that's what states do and then we're getting freed from it and we're freeing it we're being freed that's how the transmutation happens sometimes this sort of practice might seem on one level uh, contradictory to some of what Ajahn Chah taught. Because in, in uh, uh, Thailand, one can find places where you know, he's poo-pooing people who are just wanting magical chants to feel better. And, uh, but I think one needs to take this and uh, put it in a context. Ajahn Chah was our Kuan Yin. He was our living manifestation of the compassionate one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. Kuan Yin had a thousand hands and eye. Kuan Yin didn't just have one response. Kuan Yin responded to what was needed. In, in Thailand, there's rites and rituals galore, and that's what everybody wants. They want the lottery number. They want, they want something magical. They want... And, and, and what... Ajahn Chah was giving in this, uh, when he talked in that way, is he was, he was offering a mirror. He was offering people to see the ultimate escape from suffering. He wanted people to accept the heavenly messenger of old age, sickness, and death. But it doesn't mean to say that Ajahn Chah wasn't also compassionate and didn't help people turn their states. He was doing it all the time. He was always there, willing to be with people, answer to their questions. He was... Uh, and, if, and if somebody, like when our, our Western teacher likes to tell this story, Ajahn Sumedho would... He, was, he told us once, once when he was uh, telling Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah, I am not going to be a teenager again. I don't want to go through that again. I am so glad that I'm just going to get done in this life and be out of here. And Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, Huh, what about the rest of us? Again, remember the image. When someone's going to the left ditch, he says, go right. When someone's going to the right ditch, he says, go left. Someone's just always wanting the conditions to get better, wanting someone else to turn the condition around for me. Make it better, make it better, make it better. 
Ajahn Chah would teach then just the mirror of wisdom of things are changing, things are suffering when you grasp, let go. He would teach just let go. But if someone was going on and on about just getting out of here, he would teach, wait a minute, what about the rest of us? Where's that kindness? Where's that compassion? Where's that willingness to just be here? My experience of Ajahn Chah is that he was hugely compassionate. When, um, you know, and he would, like when I was um, really sick, I had, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I had this, uh, I had had diarrhea for six months, I was urinating blood, and then uh, I got a fever. And uh, it was typhoid, we didn't know it at the time, but up in where we were, they were giving me herbal things and they just weren't working. And basically the monks saw that I was dying, you know, I was was sick. And I was always delirious, had a huge fever. And Ajahn Chah knew a, uh, German doctor, and there was an American medical hospital in uh, Bangkok from the Vietnam War. And Ajahn Chah knew this, had a disciple that was a German doctor. So they decided, Ajahn Chah decided to send me to Bangkok. But it's a nine-hour train ride, so one of the monks was going to go with me. And uh, they were going to have this ambulance waiting for me, and then they would take me. But anyway, I'm out of it in this delirium. Um... But just get a, a feeling of how Ajahn Chah's compassion worked. You know, he, uh, when I was brought on a stretcher to the train station, I was going in and out of uh, consciousness. Uh, one of the monks uh, came and, uh, from Wat Papong, the monastery where Ajahn Chah was. I was living at a branch monastery with the Westerners. And this monk came, uh, Ajahn Santa Chito, and he, and he just, uh, you know, he got me conscious and just said, Ajahn Chah wants you to know he's thinking about you. And it's like, you know, you feel like there's, with Ajahn Chai, you felt there was this umbrella, this umbrella, that it was all going to be all right. He's thinking about you. He's sorry he can't be here right here at the train station, but he wants you to know he's thinking about you now. Or like when I was in the hospital before, right before that, when... Uh, uh, I can't remember what stories I've told y'all, but that was uh, when I was urinating the blood and the, I ended up in this monk's ward and it was a hell realm. Screams during the night, the guy on my right died of cholera. The guy on the left uh, was going to have a kidney operation, was terrified. The guy across the aisle had this huge sore on his leg and it wouldn't heal and his little brother was sleeping on the floor underneath him so to keep his brother company and they were talking about amputating the guy's leg. It was, it was a nightmare. I'm trying to be this monk. Uh, didn't want pain pills. I'm woken up by a scream in the night, and I realized it was me in agony. I accepted some medicine. And when Ajahn Chah came to visit, he came to visit. The next morning, it was like the rising sun. Lovely orange. He was round. Sure. Lovely golden robes, like this robe came in. I was the only monkey new in there, but he went and stopped at everybody's. Asked them a question, just listen, just touching. 
And bestowing courage, he bestowed courage. That's what he did, that, you know, you can be with this. And when he got to me, and I had someone help translate, uh, Sister Kamfa, but I could understand the basic stuff. He's uh, asking me, and I said, Ajahn Chah, I've got to get out of here. This is, a, this is a hell realm. And he just said, well, I'll send the police after you if you try to go. So I started laughing. I didn't think I would start laughing. And I said, well, what do you do about pain? And he just said, He says, you know pain. You just know pain. Now, on one level, that's an ultimate teaching. So you can take that and think, oh, the Ajahn Chah just says no pain. But one also, this huge compassionate presence, that his very presence melts, makes you laugh, makes things just fall away, giving you the courage and the confidence that you can be with the state so that the state turns. Very compassionate. He responded according to what was really needed. When you asked, he could respond. What do you do? He could respond. That's how, that's how compassion works. It's an innate principle. When we're getting lost and find ourselves contracted around something, overwhelmed by something, you know, can we invoke the measureless? Or can we just ask, what is wise here? Even that for a moment, even just for a moment, that, that there's a seed of confidence that there is wisdom here somewhere. It's not just listening to this voice that's telling us, run away. At least we pause for a moment. What is wise here? Invoking the one who's wise and compassionate. Invoking the one who listens. We practice this because our habit is to contract. Our habit is to take birth around the, the limited. We have this opportunity to make offerings. Encouraged by the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha. Encouraged by great masters. The great Chan masters, these are the great Chan masters of China. I mean, like these guys. They sit for days on rocks. Master Wa would, would, would walk barefoot in the snow for months. These guys were tough. Why would these guys have their toughest Chan retreats, their toughest driving the mind back, turning the mind back to listen right to the source, fearlessly? Why would they perceive that almost always? by a period just like this of reciting the Buddha's name or a Bodhisattva's name. They understood this principle. 
of balancing blessings with wisdom. Just like the Buddha didn't just break through into full awakening, he realized he didn't have the strength, so it was preceded by being nourished, being strengthened, receiving help, receiving an offering, recognizing he wasn't ready yet for that battle. He received nourishment. He then calmed the mind. Then when it was ready, his his resolution came to to just penetrate. We're gathering. You being able, we have the privilege of using our body, using our mouth, our speech, using our mind, the three streams of karma, to, to just do something blameless, to keep remembering a measureless principle which is not apart from our own nature the principle of boundless wisdom and compassion, to make offerings to that, a bow, a sound, a, a, the courage to stay with a difficult mood. Can we namo kwan chim pusa with a difficult mood, patiently, and maybe have the opportunity to see the mood empty itself, the mood turn. this principle of the salt crystal. We get overwhelmed when we're trying to drink something that's, the obstruction is too bitter. When that same obstruction, the very same mood, the very same doubt, the very same depression, the very same despair, when that very same mood is plunged into fresh, wide expanse of pristine, virtuous energy, it's dissolved. For example, the story that always comes to my mind. When I, I told you I was, when I was really sick, uh, after I got over typhoid, eventually Ajahn Chah let me go to England when my father got ill, and then uh, I nearer to my family. I helped the monks in England, but then still I was sick for years, and for three, at least three years I was lying down almost all the time. I was living in the attic at Chithurst Monastery in pain most of the time. But I meditated a lot. I chanted the Great Compassion Mantra a lot. I meditated on listening a lot. I meditated on letting things keep dissolving back into the deathless a lot. And one day something, I don't know what, in a winter day made me creep up and look out the window as I was leaning on the sill, and then I saw, oh my goodness, what's that? And we had this kind of misty, damp day, and there was one of the visitors of the monastery heading out, the, the, it was a, nobody was out there but him, heading down the road with a rope. I could see it was coiled up into a noose, and I thought, oh gosh, that guy's going to try to kill himself. I think his name was Charles. He had been in prison, he had uh, different difficult offenses, sexual offenses, and he was a difficult case. But there was a spark in him of, he knew that there, he had a spark of faith in the Dhamma. So anyway, I, I see this guy, I think, God, I've got, I, nobody was there, I've got to do something. So I just 
threw a robe on, made my way down the stairs, and went down this drizzly cold. It was winter day after him, and he had uh, gone down the drive, gone left. He was. I caught up with him. I don't know, half mile away. He'd gone into a forest, and he was trying to hang himself. And so then I uh, start talking to him, and he, he, you could see his mind. His mind was inverted. Talk about limited. His mind was inverted on the way out of here is, is just, I'm getting out of here, and this is the way out. His mind was inverted. So I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing any good. But I was so cold, my teeth were chattering. They were going like that. And uh, at some point, he just noticed my teeth chattering. And he said, Kitty Sorrow, your teeth are chattering. You're cold. And he took his motorcycle leather jacket off and gave it to me. And um, for then, he snapped out of the mood. Mind is like Teeth chattering. He got touched by compassion. He made a gift. My reality, his, his reality expanded. This is the salt crystal principle. Expanded. And then so my holding power was also then became part of his world, his field. He made a gift into that. Opened up. And that mood, I'm not saying permanently, but that mood then turned. He was able to see the mood turn. Shifted. He actually felt good for a moment. Then talking, and I uh, hugged him. It was like hugging a porcupine. His energy field was like thousands of little needles. I just, I just felt that hugging him. I was just thinking, oh, that must—that's a painful place, painful place to abide. This holding of the name is continually allowing us to make an offering to the compassionate one, to keep linking with this measureless abiding place. Not denying the particular, but then the particular can be more the mood, the doubt, the pain, recognized for what it is as a state so that it can turn. Then it turns and we realize there's we're remaining still. That's what tathagata means. It's the stillness in the midst of movement. The suchness in the midst, in the midst of changeability. I return my life. Just as when Ajahn Chah, when I first met him, when he said he, when he, I was sincerely trying to solve the problems of the universe, but it was too complicated. I was trying to figure it all out. It was too complicated. He said, can you just be with something simple? When you understand the breath, you'll understand everything. In and out, it's changeable. This holding of the name is the exact same principle. One thought, 
Let that thought just be a simple thought invoking the awakened one, the sacred name, the compassionate one, the merciful one. And we let each thought, we get to know one thought. Notice that thought appears and dissolves. It appears and dissolves. It appears and dissolves. So we get used to the ephemerality of thought, the emptiness of thought, and each thought each time, Namo Kwan Chim Pusa, I return my life to the merciful one, the compassionate one. Each time that thought dissolves, it brings us right back to the one heart, our measureless home. That vast brightness which will dissolve any and all obstructions. Kuan Yin is called the bestower of fearlessness, the bestower of courage. Just like Ajahn Chah, when he could come in that hell realm, and just for a moment, after seeing him, and that gave me a little more of the courage, okay, I'll stay here. He says, it's all right. I can know this pain. We have a friend. The great saints and sages have made deep vows. for the welfare of all beings. Can we in moments trust that there is a compassionate core here, a listening core here? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.